Luke chapter 15, we're wrapping up a series that we began uh, a few weeks ago. It's called the story of the missing son. And in this uh, particular passage of scripture from Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about two lost sons and a father who loves both of those sons uh, dearly. Jesus tells this story, the, the purpose for this story is to blow out all of the paradigms that people have about their understanding of a real, how to have a relationship with God. The older son, the older brother in this story, represents people who believe that uh, a relationship with God is based on obeying rules and on being a good person. We've been calling those people moralists. And um, that's the older son. The younger son in the story represents the kind of person that we've been calling um, and again, this isn't inspired. It's just a name we've given to them. They're, they're called expressive individualists. Uh, they're people who are relativists. They don't believe in absolute truth. Uh, they believe everybody should determine truth for themselves and live the way that they want to live. Jesus says that neither of those two philosophies of life, neither of those two approaches represents the gospel. And he says both groups are lost. But surprisingly, he says that the group that is the most lost among those two is the moralists. That group of people is the most lost because they can't believe that their goodness is not enough to obligate God to give them a relationship with him. And so what he wants them to do, we could say it this way, that he wants the moralists to lose their religion and discover the gospel. Okay, that's where we've been so far uh, in this series. That's what we've covered. Now, today as we wrap up, I want to zero in on a character in the story that we haven't analyzed yet. And that is the father in this story, who, of course, represents uh, God. Specifically, what I want to do is I want to see what this text has to teach us about how to experience intimacy with God. Not just how to cognitively know God, but how to experience intimacy with God in a way that neither moralism nor expressive individualism allows. So let's go back. Let's read the first half of the parable again, starting in verse 11, just to kind of remind ourselves of some of the details of the passage. Starting in verse 11, Jesus continued. text says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out, I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Jesus teaches, I think, in this passage of Scripture, four things that we need if we're going to experience intimacy with God. Four things that you need if you're going to experience with intimacy with God. Not just know God, not just know about God, but if you're going to experience real intimacy uh, with God. And here's the first thing that you need. An intimacy-seeking God. 
<laughs> Number one, you need a God who cares about intimacy with you, he, who seeks intimacy with you. Now, here's what's interesting about this particular passage. The description of the father in this story would have exasperated the religious moralists that were there when Jesus told this particular story. Moralists, if you know a moralist, or if you are a moralist, you might know that moralists tend toward an exacting, cold, rules-oriented, very rigid uh, image of God. Not much compassion in a moralist's God. Not much touchy-feeliness. And so these moralists that were there when Jesus told this story wouldn't have had any idea what to do with a father figure who runs toward his son. No first century Jewish father would pick up his robes and run to his son. That was very undignified. They wouldn't have known what to do with a father who runs. They wouldn't have known what to do with a father who hugs, who kisses, who feels compassion, wouldn't have known what to do with any of that, which is why Jesus describes the Father in this particular story in the way that Jesus describes him. He wants us to see a picture of an intimacy-seeking God. Now, I want to just show you three things that the Father does in this particular passage that contribute to intimacy. Now, let me just say two. Parents, and uh, grandparents. The purpose of this particular talk today isn't necessarily parenting and grandparenting and, and all of that, but I will say this. You might want to look very closely at some of the things the Father does that contribute to intimacy. The first thing that he does is he grants freedom. He gives his sons freedom. Did you notice that? He lets the younger son go. Younger son says, I, 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 look, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to go. And he, and, he, and he lets him go. Later in the story, for those of you who've been with us throughout this series, and we'll see it in just a few minutes, later in the story, the father goes out to his older son and he begs him to come into a party that he's throwing. And, and the older son refuses to go in and the father doesn't force him to come in. Now, why doesn't? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he, why does he grant freedom? Because, look, listen to this. You can't control someone into loving you. And moms and dads and parents, you cannot, in, you cannot control your kids into loving Christ. You can influence them, but you can't control them into loving Christ. Love, in order to be loved, must be freely chosen. If you want, if you want people to love you or love Christ, they have to freely choose to do that. And you can't control them into it. And that's what the father does. He gives freedom to his kids. Second thing that he does is he demonstrates physical affection. He hugs and he kisses his son. This is not a remote and a distant father. He expresses love physically with his son. And some of you, by the way, might ask, well, okay, but how, how does God express love physically uh, to us? He's done it in his son, Jesus. That's what he did. God took on human flesh. He became physical uh, so that he could demonstrate his love for humanity. And so he demonstrates physical affection uh, to his sons in the story. And then third, he displays compassion in the story. Did his son violate the father's values? Of course he did. Did he reject his father? Of course he did. And yet the father feels compassion for his son's pain, and he moves to alleviate it, by restoring his son to the family. And look, I, I would guess that there are probably other traits that if you look at this long enough, you could find too. 
I just want you to see that Jesus wants us to understand that we have an intimacy-seeking God. He cares to have intimacy with you. And this is something that the religious leaders knew nothing about. The religious leaders in Jesus' day knew nothing about that kind of a God. Now, I would suspect that there are many of you here today who also have no experience with an intimacy-seeking God. And the reason for that might be that you grew up in a, in a cold, exacting religious home. And so an intimacy-seeking God is far from your imagination. Some of you might have, I don't know, maybe you grew up in a home with a father who never said he loved you. And maybe even never touched you. And so the idea of an intimacy-seeking God is very hard for you to get your head around. Or maybe you grew up in a home with a father, with a father who did seek intimacy, but he did it in a sick way, and he sexually abused you. And so in, you, you just, you know, the idea of intimacy is uh, frightening to you. Or maybe you grew up in a home with a father who was physically or verbally abusive in some way. I want you to understand that the image of a father, the image of God that you have in your head has been warped by your experience with an earthly father. And it's, it's likely that you don't realize how much that has affected your life if you fall into one of those categories. It's likely you don't understand how deeply that has affected the way that you live your life. Many years ago, a guy by the name of A.W. Tozier, he was a pastor, wrote a book, phenomenal little book. If you haven't read this book, you, you need to read it. It was called Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he's got this chapter, in it, in, in it's titled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. And, I, and I've just... I have a little section of that chapter up here uh, that we're going to put up here on the screen, and I just want to read it to you. He, He says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man, and by the way, just let me say this, atheist, agnostic, Christian, anybody, any human being, regardless of their beliefs about God, God is still the object and subject of life. And so were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today? we might be able with some precision to, for, to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. What's he saying? Well, he's saying the same thing. If you guys were here a couple weeks ago, we said, he's saying the same thing we said just a couple weeks ago. This is what we said. That good psychology is good theology made personal. In other words, the way you think about God, your theology, the way that you see him, the way you envision him, dictates.
dictates, you might not even know it, but it dictates the way that you think and the way that you live. Why? Because God is, as I said just a moment ago, like it or not, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, a Buddhist, God is the subject and the object of life. And so one of the most important things that you have to do is to get a correct image of God. And you need to see God. You need to understand that God is an intimacy-seeking God. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not cold and exacting and rigid. He wants intimacy with you. So if you're going to experience intimacy with God, you need an intimacy-seeking God. And praise God, we have an intimacy-seeking God. Here's the second thing that you need if you want to experience intimacy with God. You need to come to your senses. You need to come to your senses. Look at verse 17. Did you notice that the text says, when the younger son finally comes to, you know, when he finally hits bottom, he's standing in a pig trough, lonely and starving, and just notice what the text says in verse 17. First, uh, first statement there. It says, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Okay, he says he's got to come to his senses. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is very important that you understand this. This phrase, coming to your senses... Elsewhere in the Bible is called repentance. Watch this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Up here. The Apostle Paul is writing to his protege Timothy, and he says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses. That's repentance. And escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive uh, to do his will. What Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 15 is that central to the experience of intimacy with God is repentance. Notice that of the two brothers in this story, only one experiences the kiss of the father. Do you notice that? And he also happens to be, it's the younger one, and he also happens to be the only one who acknowledges that he did wrong. Repentance is central to the experience of intimacy with the Father. But, but, and I want you to listen to this. This is important. I don't want to take for granted that everyone here understands accurately what repentance is. Because my guess is that those of you who have some experience with organized religion would say, that, would say here's, here's what repentance is. This is probably what you think repentance is. Repentance is when you've violated some command of God, you probably think that repentance is telling God that you're sorry for that and, and then trying not to do it again. That's probably what you think repentance is. All right. The problem with that understanding of repentance is the older son in this story. You remember him? Ends the story. He's at at the end of the story. He's angry at his father. And I want you to notice why. Look at what he says in verse 28. Verse 28, chapter 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry And he refused to go in. Remember, this is the party that the father's throwing for the younger son because he's glad that he's back home. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But verse 29, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you 
And I never disobeyed your orders. You see, the problem with the view of repentance that it's something that you do when you do something wrong, only when you do something wrong and that you tell God that I violated one of your commands, the problem with this is, is this older brother because if you notice, he says he hasn't violated any of the Father's commands. He says he has nothing to repent of because he's done nothing wrong. And yet, the older son doesn't get to experience the kiss of the Father in this story. He doesn't experience intimacy with the Father because he never repents. He says he has nothing to repent of. Do we believe that he has nothing to repent of? No, of course not. So what gives? All the way back in the first, I think it was in the first week of this series, we said, you guys may remember this if you were with us, we said that both of these sons in the story have the same problem. They're both guilty of the exact same thing. They just manifest it in radically different ways. Here's the problem. The younger son and the older son both are trying to be their own savior. The younger son, he wants to save himself from living under his father's authority. He's like, oh man, if I have to live under my father's authority, that'll be death. I don't want that. So he's got to get away from his father's authority. The older son, he wants to save himself by obeying his father's authority. He thinks that he can obligate the father to do what he wants him to do. The problem is neither son think that they really need the father, which, by the way, is why it's logically impossible for moralists or relativists to experience intimacy with God because neither believe that they need God. Only the gospel says, only the gospel says, you need a savior. It's not until the younger son hits bottom and comes to his senses and realizes that he needs his father to rescue him to be his savior. It's not until then that he experiences the kiss of the father. That, that then, is what repentance is. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is coming to your senses about the insanity of trying to be your own savior. That's what it is. Whether you express it in good deeds by being a moralist, or whether you express it in, as an individual, uh, expressive individualist by doing your own thing, either way, repentance is saying, Lord, I, I, it was, I was insane. I was trying to be my own savior by how I prayed, by how often I prayed, by how often I did my Bible study, or, or by how many good deeds I did, I, how much money I gave. I, I was trying to be my own savior by that. That was insane. I could never be my own savior. I need a savior. Or on the other hand, God, I was trying to, I was trying to be my savior, man, by, by, by partying and, and, and drugs and, and uh, uh, sex and, and all of that stuff. Lord, all of that stuff, I was just trying to be my own savior. I, that was insane. Either way, either way. You're just trying to be your own savior. You're just manifesting it in different ways. That's what the repentance is, is, is coming to your senses about the insanity of trying to be your own savior. And by the way, just let me make this, this kind of... Repentance is not just a one-time thing. Uh, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, on the, uh, 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, which started the Protestant Reformation, the first, uh, the first of his 95 theses was this. All of life is Repentance. All of life is repentance. In other words, as I grow spiritually, 
And I, I, I regularly and increasingly become aware of all the ways that I insanely try to be my own savior. And I own it. And as I do own it, I turn back to God every time. And I say, you're my savior, not me. I need you. I can't, I, I can't be my own savior. And so if you want to experience intimacy with God, you've got to come to your senses. For some of you, like it's a first time coming to your senses thing. It's like you've never come to a point where you've said, I, I accept that I need a Savior, and Jesus could be my Savior. It's the first time for some of you. For some of you, you you've come to that place, but it's like as you live your life, you, you need to continue to recognize all the ways that you're trying to be your own Savior and come to your senses and own it and turn back to the Father. If you want to experience intimacy with God, repentance is central to that. Okay, next two points will be quick, I promise. Here we go. The third one is this. You need a love prior to your repentance if you want to experience intimacy with God. You need a love prior to your repentance. If you look carefully at this story, there are two signs that the father's love occurs prior to the younger son's repentance. Okay? The first is just when he gives his son freedom, even though it would bring much pain to the father, love always gives freedom. Okay, so the father was already loving the son before, he, before the son rebelled. He gave him his freedom. Okay, but here's the second. I want you to see this. I want you to look at this. What The placement of the kiss of the father in the story. When does the kiss happen? Have you, did you notice that? Does it happen before or does it have, happen after the son's speech? The son works out in his head what he wants to say, but I want you to look at, look at verse 20. Just look at verse 20, chapter 15, verse 20. He, he, he gets up, he goes to his father. But the text says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. When did the kiss happen? Before or after the son's speech? Is before the son's speech. The son doesn't even get to say anything before his dad tackles him and slobbers all over him. It's a lot easier, isn't it, to say you're wrong to someone after they've hugged you and kissed you and greeted you like with the biggest smile that you've ever seen? Isn't it much easier to say you're sorry at that moment, right? The love of God for this son is not caused by the son's repentance. Now, the son's experience of the father's love did depend upon the son repenting, right? Okay, got to be careful about that. But the father's love for the son wasn't caused by the son's repentance. He loved him before he repented. It was prior to that. And I want you to understand, again, you got to understand this. There is not a single religion in the world that claims a God like this one. In every world religion, you have to clean yourself up before God ever will accept you. Only in the gospel does God love you while you're still in your mess. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the point. To experience intimacy with God, you need a God whose love pounces on you while you're still a mess. 
That's what you need. However you came in here today, whatever you were doing yesterday, whatever you did this morning, whatever you did last week, I just want you to know God loved you prior to that. And before you ever say, I'm sorry, God is still, he's like pouncing on you. Because he just loves you. So you need a love prior to repentance. And then the last one, and I made this point last week, so I'm not going to dwell on this. But fourth, you need an older brother. If you want to experience intimacy with God, you need an older brother who will pay your debt. And, and as I said, we, we talked about this last week, that what this story needs is an older brother who will go in search of the younger brother and pay any price to restore him. And we saw last week that Jesus is that older brother. Here's the thing. God is loving. He is. He is absolutely loving. But you also need to know that besides being loving, he is also very just. And so while he can forgive sin, he can't overlook sin. And so God became human in Jesus. And he died on a cross to pay for the sin of all of humanity, for the sin of insanely believing that we could actually be our own Savior. You can't experience intimacy with God that you don't believe that you need. And so I would say to those of you who are moralists this morning, you know, we've been doing this whole series just to speak to the moralists in the room this morning. Moralists, you need to know you need a Savior. God doesn't love you because of your good behavior. And your behavior can never earn God's love. You need a Savior. Even your best prayers, even your best Bible studies, even your best good deeds, all of those, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before God in and of themselves. And if you're a moralist here today, you need a Savior. If you're an expressive individualist, you, you need a Savior too. Gospels, the gospel says that you, can, that you can experience intimacy with God, but you have to first admit that you need Him. And it is time to repent of your insanity. It's time for some of you to come to the cross of Jesus to throw all of your good works down at the cross and throw all of the ugly stuff that you've done, throw all of that stuff down at the cross and come to the cross of Jesus who is the Savior of the world and who is the picture of the pouncing God who seeks intimacy with you. It's time to come to the cross. 